0: Are you ever jealous of the well-presented visual content that some people add into their social media posts or business presentations? The slick business documents that you see, or the catchy graphics and the ace backgrounds, and you think to yourself, if only I could do that, but it's beyond me. Well it's not, because you can do just that yourself with Canva for Teams. Or not just you, perhaps you and your team also, simple as. The artwork and that jazz that some people put into everything is impressive, but for ages I thought that doing it was beyond me, too complex and too daunting looking to do. But that was until I started messing about with Canva for Teams, because as there is as much in there to help you as there is to captivate you, I now see how simply you can do it. Personally, I love the Facebook ad in effects and its templates for Instagram posts. I think they're great, but that's just a fraction. You've got Canva Docs and Canva Whiteboards, giving you and your team infinite space to collaborate and brainstorm, with the added power of design for those best results. Canva Presentations, which will take your presentations up to that next level through the use of professionally designed templates, or Canva Print, so all of these inspired designs that you make, you can bring to life on anything, be it posters to mugs and all printed planet friendly. Just mess about with it, it's chocker with no end of great stuff to help you turn inspiration into design in no time. Plus, with features such as Magic Write, where if you're suffering that dreaded writer's block, then you can simply enter a prompt into and it will generate a first draft for you, boom. Or Magic Design, where by simply uploading an image, you can watch as a collection of unique templates appear that you can customise to your own liking or simply finish off with a few personal touches. You'll find Canva, Canva's countless premium fonts and graphics, and free library of videos, pictures, audio tracks, and animations at your disposal, loaded with all you, or you and your team need, to make the best creations you can, supporting and maybe even suggesting your creative process each step of the way. Design and collaborate with Canva for Teams. Right now, you can get a free 45-day extended trial when you go to canva.me slash TCE. That's C-A-N-V-A dot M-E slash T-C-E for a free 45-day extended trial. canva.me slash T-C-E hello all and the very warmest of welcomes to the true crime enthusiast podcast coming to you from the corner of north wales in which each time around i strive to bring you those tales of true crime that may be unfamiliar unreal sounding often unbelievable you may think to yourself but all of which are as true as the fact that sam smith is still an utter attention-seeking end. Bringing you these tales is myself, Paul, the creator, host, and true crime enthusiast of the show's title. The Mark is here with me, of course, Pixie, the true crime enthusi-cat. And rounding us off into a motley crew are yourselves, the enthusiasts that me and the Peaks, and I lean very heavily towards me there, do the show for simple as. It's as fabulous as always having you join us today, which I thank you kindly for. And I do hope that as you have, it's for an episode that finds you and yours all good, All safe, all well, and ready for the carnage that is Christmas. So, still building up to the end of this series, though that will go through the Christmas period, work has fallen alright for me this year, what can I say? And here, I felt it high time on the show, we revisited somewhere we have a few times before over the various series. The State Hospital in the County of South Lanarkshire in Scotland. Well. The State Hospital is its official title, but it takes the much more common moniker it's known as from the village that's right next to it, the village of Carstairs. Alongside Ashworth Hospital in Merseyside, Rampton Hospital in Nottinghamshire, and perhaps the most infamous in the UK, Broadmoor Hospital in Berkshire, the State Hospital is the often overlooked fourth high-security hospital in the country. For more than 65 years now, it's provided treatment and care in high security conditions for those patients from Scotland and Northern Ireland who cannot receive care in a less secure environment due to their dangerous and violent temperaments, and the tales stemming from there being many. Some years ago on the show, I brought Carstairs' most remarkable and infamous chapter as part of what I called the Carstairs Trilogy. In a tale called the Scottish Chain of Ten, have a listen if you haven't already, it's one of the most remarkable stories I've ever covered. And in that tale, I explained much more in depth about the hospital, its history and its current status, so I won't repeat myself here. Whilst as I've just said, events described in the Scottish Chain of Ten is unquestionably the most infamous tale to stem from the state hospital, There are of course several others that are well worthy of accounting and as we haven't been back there for a while I thought it was high time we did now so I've researched three further accounts of some of the patients to spend time within Carstairs walls. The episode contains details and descriptions of crimes and events including descriptions of mental illness, injury detail and involving children that some listeners may find disturbing and or distressing so, please use discretion whilst listening in all. With that in mind, please join the true crime enthusiasts for an episode I've entitled Four More from the Carstairs Floors. To begin, then, we head first to the Aberdeenshire village of New Pitsligo and back to the 9th of December 1932, where one Alexander Stewart was born the second oldest of a family of seven. Never academic and in trouble from a young age, Alexander had his first run in with the law at the age of 13, when he received a year's probation for dishonesty and was sent to an approved school for two years. After leaving school at 14, he was taken on as an apprentice butcher in Aberdeen before in 1950, at 18, he joined the Royal Artillery as a gunner. Now, most young men benefit from the discipline of life in the armed forces. Certainly the best thing I ever did. But after six years as a soldier serving largely in the Middle East, Stuart was discharged and returned to Aberdeenshire with no ambition other than to simply become a criminal specialising in housebreaking. Something which he proved to be audacious in. The fact that he quickly became a target for police made him a minor hero in the Aberdeen underworld in which younger crooks and the press soon tagged him the Phantom, because of his apparent ability to ghost in and out of the homes of victims. Stuart having the code of raiding only ground floor homes, many of which were council properties, and the knack of entering by squeezing or wriggling through an unsecured window. The Phantom was a nickname that he gloried in, but far from the fictional costumed crime fighter who operates from the fictional country of Bangala, stuart on the other hand was as far removed from a crime fighter as it was possible to be he was a prolific thief who crept into the homes of unsuspecting folks with few possessions and crept away sometimes merely with little things ornaments or cheap jewelry which meant so much to them perhaps even mementos of dead loved ones all stashed away to be sold by him for a few pounds and a quick profit What he also failed to understand when he began this crime wave on Christmas Day 1956 was that the bigger his reputation was fanned by small-time criminals, the greater a police target the phantom became. As 1957 passed, he committed offence after offence, and the week before his eventual arrest, the burglars' latest exploits had made the front page lead in the Aberdeen Evening Express with the headline, the Phantom Again. The article explained how in the early hours of Friday, the 6th of September, four homes in the Hilton and Ashgrove areas of Aberdeen were broken into. In Cadenhead Road, the residents slept undisturbed as two houses there were ransacked and a small sum of money stolen. Though in Hilton Place, a woman disturbed the Phantom when she heard a door creak and switched on the light, causing him to flee empty handed. He had no luck either when he entered the home of the future Lord Provost, Robert Lennox, in Gillespie Crescent. As the housebreaker made a getaway, Councillor Lennox phoned the police. Then the city's housing convener, he quipped to officers, I knew it wasn't someone after a house at that time of the morning. What a funny story. Now it turned out that the Phantom had actually been in police sight since July. They were convinced from intel received that Alexander Stewart was their man, but they were not prepared to pounce on him until they felt the circumstances in which they did would ensure him coming before a court. Because of increased police vigilance, the Phantom had kept his head down that August, but by September, he had resumed his nocturnal activities, and on the 14th of September 1957, he walked right into a police trap. That evening, desperate to catch the phantom, police officers had surrounded Stuart's council house, number 13 Kilgore Avenue, and waited. During their vigil, they learned that two houses had been reported as broken into in nearby Harris Drive in Tilly and at around 3am, Stuart was apprehended as he slipped inside the common lobby at number 13. Knowing his luck had finally run out, he told the arresting officers, almost resignedly all right fellas at the police station the officers discovered that stewart's hall from that evening included cash sweets matches a fountain pen cigarettes and a postal order a search of his bedroom back home uncovered a large number of other stolen items as well as a pair of women's cashmere gloves which he'd worn during his raids unwittingly loaned to him by a female friend. On the 9th of October, Stewart, tireless and dressed in a grey raincoat, appeared in the dock at Aberdeen Sheriff Court when the only time he spoke was to admit some 94 charges, all but one which were connected to housebreaking and theft. Stewart pled guilty to 55 counts of theft by housebreaking, 25 of housebreaking with intent to steal. Eleven of attempted housebreaking with intent to steal, one of theft by housebreaking and opening lockfast places with intent to steal, one of theft, and one of driving away a motorcycle in Middlefield Terrace in Aberdeen. The value of the stolen property he had admitted to taking came to two hundred eighty pounds ten shillings, under six thousand pounds in today's money, but of which only eighteen pounds and three shillings around 300 quid, was ever recovered. Stuart listened as Mr. A.L. Nixon, prosecuting, said his conduct had caused considerable alarm in Aberdeen, especially in homes where the only male resident was on night shift, or there was no man living there, and because of the widespread publicity of his campaign, Stuart had been dubbed the Phantom. In the public interest, I would like to make it clear that he was far from that the procurator fiscal said adding that although stewart was unemployed he was not prepared to go without which had been the motive behind his extraordinary series of crimes hugh cochran defending said that having committed the first two crimes stewart had then grown in confidence and housebreaking had merely become a regular part of his life otherwise he was quiet and inoffensive and had cooperated with the police since his arrest Mr. Cochran added, I think he is somewhat frightened and deflated now that this stage has arisen. He has expressed his regret at his form of life, and tells me he has made up his mind to finish altogether his life of crime. Sheriff Aikman Smith had considered sending Stuart to the High Court for sentence, but because of the accused's age, and the fact that the longest ever jail term he had served was three months he decided to impose the maximum sentence he could give there. Imposing a sentence of two years imprisonment, he told Stuart he was a sneak thief who had merely enjoyed a run of luck, adding, The worst feature of this case is the alarm you have caused to old people and to women who are living alone. I hope that you don't think because you were given a nickname that you were a romantic figure, you have shown yourself to be merely a petty criminal. Despite Stewart's vow to keep on the right side of the law, upon his release in late 1958, he resumed his life of crime and over the next decade was in and out of jail for petty crimes. It was to the former Peterhead prison in Aberdeenshire that Alexander Stewart was eventually taken in 1969 after police brought an end to another housebreaking spree of his by arresting him and hauling him in front of a sheriff. At first he was held in Craig Inches, Aberdeen's own prison, where concerns about his mental state were first expressed, but then he was moved up to Peterhead, where the jail there truly was the pit of the prison system, a stark antiquated dump where the amenities were little better than those of a medieval dungeon, and where the prison service sent the worst of the worst to fester in the damp, cramped, overcrowded cells a true spawning ground for depression and whilst there Alexander Stewart had more reason than many to slide down into a deep melancholy depression which I shall come on to shortly we meet now Stewart's brother Frank seven years younger than him and someone who was a bachelor and a loner who didn't make friends very easily he'd held a number of jobs down over the years as varied as from Vanboy to Cinema Russia, before joining the army on a nine-year engagement. He was soon medically discharged, however, and for the next ten years worked as a labourer with a firm of scrap merchants at Pursley Quarry Scrapyard in Buxburn. It was there, amid the piles of waste and wrecked cars, that, just a few months after his elder brother had collected his latest prison sentence, Frank Stewart killed one of the very few people he trusted and who he could call a friend. Christmas 1969 was 10 days away and just before midnight on Monday the 15th of December Frank Stewart made his regular visit to the scrapyard to chat with the night watchman there then 73 year old William Gary Thane. A lodger in a ground floor tenement flat in Alexander Terrace, Thane, who was known as Uncle Bill to most people who knew him, was fit and active for his age. He said he'd been a boxing champion in the army, and every day he cycled to work, a distinctive figure in a coloured beret with an army pack slung over his back. The old man had worked at the scrapyard for two years, and while on duty, he wasn't alone as two Alsatian dogs kept him company, and also kept guard. Frank Stewart and Thane were regular companions having known one another for years and as Stewart was described as always wanting to broaden his outlook reportedly so he could mix better and in his quest for knowledge would pore over encyclopedias and held an especial interest in history always especially looked forward to a chinwag with Thane who would regale him with tales of his past life and of his army career despite their friendship however Stuart may have nursed somewhat of a grievance against the old man, for he later claimed he'd been overlooked for the post of night watchman, and on the fateful night Stuart had been drinking. Thane had regularly warned the loner about his heavy drinking, and it would appear that that evening he had again begun to lecture Stuart on its pitfalls. In the watchman's hut, a heated argument broke out between the pair and blows were exchanged causing Stuart to see red and pick up a nearby iron ladle he struck the watchman repeatedly about the head with it inflicting catastrophic and terrible injuries upon him and then after the brutal killing merely went home to bed now incidentally the ladle used to beat Uncle Bill to death later became a macabre exhibit in Grampian Police Force's museum collection at 9.30am on Tuesday the 16th of December, workmen at the yard found Thane's dead body. Stuart was arrested shortly afterwards and confessed immediately to the killing, though according to his version of events, he had acted in self-defence, saying Thane had threatened him with an iron bar, but adding, I should have ignored him, he was much older than me. Now less than eight hours later, and coincidentally, the very same day that MPs had voted overwhelmingly to abolish hanging for good, after the law to end the death penalty had first been passed in nineteen sixty five, with three hundred and forty three votes to one hundred and eighty five, a result that was greeted with loud cheers on all sides of the House of Commons. Detectives of the Northeastern County's Constabulary had announced they were investigating a murder and that a man would subsequently appear at Aberdeen Sheriff Court charged with it when he appeared at the high court in aberdeen on the 31st of march 1970 to face trial frank stewart admitted the culpable homicide of william thane and after hearing medical evidence from dr andrew m wiley and dr alexander innes of cornhill hospital in aberdeen presiding lord Kisson ruled that stewart was suffering from a mental disorder within the meaning of the Mental Health Scotland Act 1966, and ordered him to be detained at Carstairs without limit of time, only to be released with the approval of the government. While that now meant a 300-mile round trip to Lanarkshire whenever his mother Joan or anyone else in the family wanted to visit him, at least even though he was in the state hospital, he was better off than in a grim prison that would probably have been Peterhead a bus journey to the north of Aberdeen where his elder brother Alexander then was within a year of Frank's committal however the aforementioned same doctors returned to the same witness box of the same court after Frank's wayward brother Alexander by then 37 and newly released from Peterhead prison appeared there charged with murdering 40 year old Daphne McWilliam at her home at 54 Raiden Crescent in Aberdeen, by stabbing her repeatedly with a knife or similar instrument, and striking her on the head and face with a pan, as well as being also accused of murdering his own 32-year-old wife, Shirley, of 179 D-side Gardens, by repeatedly stabbing her at a business premises in Moyer Crescent. The Phantom had made a massive jump in his criminal career. Eight years before, in 1963, a steady influence had entered Alexander Stewart's life in the shape of Shirley Loney, an attractive divorcee five years younger than him. The second youngest of five children, Shirley had attended Hilton Secondary School, had a few varied jobs after leaving there, and had married in her teens. Though this marriage had quickly broken down, she had married again. This time to Alexander Stewart at Aberdeen Registrar's office on the 4th of October 1963. Now, if anything good could be said of him, it was that Alexander worshipped the ground on which his wife Shirley walked, and he idolised the three sons that his marriage to Shirley were to produce. He had told friends when she accepted his marriage proposal in 1963 that he was the happiest man on God's earth but it didn't take Shirley long to have doubts as to whether she'd done the right thing by marrying him. An intolerable strain was was placed on their marriage as Stuart, who had been working as a labourer at Perth Hydroelectric Board, soon reverted to his criminal past, but as he was no master criminal, leaving his wife to bring up their three young sons alone whenever he was behind bars. Determined that her sons would not follow the path of their father into prison she was constantly pleading with her husband to stay on the straight and narrow but her own happiness gradually turned to disappointment as her words constantly fell on deaf ears and so when Alexander Stewart was arrested again in June 1969 the prospect of another prison sentence for her husband was the last straw as far as she was concerned and she eventually looked elsewhere for solace Now Shirley was reportedly an attractive woman with plenty of male admirers, although she gave them no encouragement. However, there was one exception, and it was in his arms that she found comfort. His would become fatal among embraces. With Stuart inside yet again, Shirley and the boys had moved to Aberdeen's Deeside Gardens, and she'd found employment working for butcher Gordon McWilliam who owned a couple of shops in the Northfield area of Aberdeen, and who became the other man in her life, gradually became the only man. He was married with two teenage children, but Shirley became his mistress and he her lover. And whilst Alexander Stewart was detained at Craig Inch's prison to await his sentence, and wondered why Shirley had not visited him, the answer soon came through the prison grapevine she'd left him for good and set up home with McWilliam in Deeside Gardens. Stuart's response to hearing this news was to throw himself from a first floor landing in a pathetic attempt at suicide, although most saw it more as an attempt to win his wife's sympathy. If that was the motive, it failed. He was duly sent off to Peterhead, where, in the most miserable surroundings in Scotland, of the bleakest most unsympathetic jail he brooded building up an intense anger over what he saw as the injustice of his treatment by someone he still loved deeply in mid-october 1970 the 15th he was released from peterhead and made his way south back to aberdeen to try and piece together what had become of his wife and children his mind a turmoil of brooding jealousy Two days later, he tried in vain to see his three sons at their school, and by two days later, again, he set about taking a terrible revenge. He was already on £5 bail from Aberdeen Sheriff Court on a breach of the peace when at 4 pm on that cold October afternoon in 1970, the terrified screams of his wife rang out in Northfield. Moments later, the 32-year-old ran screaming from the butcher's shop where she worked pursued by her crazed husband who lunged at her again and again with a knife as she stumbled from the premises in Moor Crescent. He stabbed her again and again as she tried to reach the grocer's shop next door before she finally crumpled in a blood-spattered heap in the shop doorway. As grocer James Morrison dialed 999 and as three fear-stricken youngsters were ushered out of the shop to safety by neighbour Mrs Rennie McClellan, who owned the nearby newsagents, stunned passers-by would later tell how, as Shirley lay bleeding to death, Stuart had leaned over her and whispered, I love you. Then, in a frightening act that was both out of frustration and another suicide attempt, Stuart smashed the plate glass window of a nearby shop with his bare hands and then sat down to await the arrival of police. Though Shirley Stewart was rushed by ambulance to Aberdeen Royal Infirmary, she was sadly found to be dead on arrival. Then, with Stewart in custody and a couple of hours after being called to the murder scene at the shop, detectives got another emergency call and this time from someone living within a mile of the murder scene. The McWilliam children were wondering why there was no response from their mother to their knocks after arriving home from school, no smile and answering hug and no tea on the table for them, and so the youngsters, aged 16 and 13, had knocked on the door of a neighbour, wondering if perhaps their mum had popped in there for a chat. The neighbour concerned at the eerie silence from daphne's home climbed in through a window to make the dreadful discovery of the body of 40 year old daphne mcwilliam the wife of shirley stewart's lover stabbed and battered to death a coat carelessly slung over her body on the kitchen floor of her home number 54 raiden crescent it was revealed later that the killer had telephoned miss mcwilliam Given her a false name, and later he had gone to her home. Stuart had decided that his first call that afternoon would be to the butcher's wife, Daphne. Now, she too had seen her life shattered by her husband's affair, and perhaps Stuart felt that in her he would find condolence, maybe he even hoped she could help him to win back his wife by persuading her husband to return to her side. No one would ever know why she agreed that Stuart could come to her home, nor would anyone know the exact sequence of events that took place in that house. What was known was that Daphne's children would never again see their mum alive, for not long after her unexpected visitor had arrived, she was dead, viciously battered and stabbed in a maniacal frenzy. This terrible and unexplained deed done, Madman Stewart then set off on the next stage of his mission of mayhem, to now look for McWilliam and Shirley, hoping to find them together in the shop where they worked. After a journey across Aberdeen, he discovered her lover wasn't there, but Shirley was, resulting in the carnage I described moments ago. When Alexander Stewart appeared at the High Court in Aberdeen on the 26th of January 1971, only two witnesses were called, the earlier mentioned Dr. Wiley and Dr. Innes. Dr. Wiley, a physician superintendent at Cornell Hospital, told the court Stuart suffered from a mental depression with psychopathic personality, and that he was also suicidal. Dr. Wiley, who had researched the accused's family's history, the court hearing that Stuart's younger brother Frank was already in Carstairs for a very serious offence told Mr. J.R. Craig defending, that Stewart had said the background to the offences was his discovery, upon being released from prison, that his wife was living with another man. He had called on this other man's wife, had an argument or quarrel with her, and had killed her. Mr. Craik asked, Did he then go and find his wife, who was working in this other man's shop, again had a quarrel with her, fought with her, and stabbed her, causing her death? Dr. Wiley said he believed this to be the case. Dr. Innes, a medical assistant at the hospital, then told the court of two suicide attempts Stuart had made in 1969. In March of that year, he had been admitted informally to Heath Hospital in Aberdeenshire after he tried to kill himself by coal gas poisoning, which had been brought on because of depression and marital and financial problems. He'd ignored medical advice and had immediately discharged himself from hospital. Then, in May, as I said, he threw himself over a balcony at Craig Inch's prison, but only fell one floor, which Stewart said he had done because his wife had not visited him while he was in jail. Now, it transpired that aside from wanting to start a new life, Mrs. Stewart had also told the social worker that her husband had assaulted her and the children when he was at liberty, but she didn't contact the police because she was afraid he would kill her. It was as much out of fear that she'd not been to visit. After hearing the medical evidence, Lord Cameron accepted defending counsel's submission that Stuart was unfit to plead to the indictment of double murder because of insanity and therefore ordered him to be detained in Carstairs without limit of time where he was then taken to join his younger brother both are believed to have died while still incarcerated there following stewart's sentencing in the family home in alexander terrace softly spoken mrs joan stewart the mother of both defended alex claiming i'm heartbroken we cannot believe this could have happened a second time to us he's a good boy really He didn't drink and thought the world of his wife and family. Frank was a different sort and kept himself very much to himself. Now as for being a good boy, the stark truth was that Stuart's petty jealousy and complete failure to face up to his own culpability for the situation had grown into a terrible thirst for vengeance that ultimately took the lives of two loving mothers. One of them a complete innocent in the whole affair, and forever left five children with a terrible memory of a day when their world collapsed inwards. We skip forward five years now to 1976, and the words echoing around the High Court in Glasgow on the afternoon of Monday, the 26th of April of that year from 59-year-old Thomas Wallace as he was dragged from the dock there were please please not Barlini please don't send me to Barlini the thin-faced dark-haired Wallace had very good reason for not wanting to be sent to the prison in the northeast of the city known as the Barrel or Glasgow's infamous big house the largest and reputedly toughest prison in Scotland He had just been given a life sentence for the horrendous killing of a friendly little boy, and he knew that other prisoners there, many with families and children of their own, would show no mercy on a monster who harmed children. In fact, they'd be waiting to exact their own punishment on Wallace, with homemade weapons or clenched fists. He knew he was in not only for a beating, but he could expect delights such as urine in his tea or over his bedding, faeces or ground glass in his food and a regular kicking when he showed his face in the exercise yard and at the age of 59 he no longer had the strength to fend off the attacks of younger stronger convicts his only respite would be to request to be placed in solitary confinement under the official rule 48 which reads Where it appears desirable for the maintenance of good order or discipline, or in his own interests, that a prisoner should not associate with other prisoners, either generally or for particular purposes, the governor may arrange for the prisoner's removal from association accordingly. But despite this, like every other inmate and member of the prison staff, Wallace knew that that was no guarantee of safety, for someone had to bring him his meals and it was the work of just a moment to contaminate them. His consolation was that he knew he wouldn't be at Barliny for long before being sent to Peterhead, where he would at least have the relative protection of other long-termers who, like him, were there because they'd murdered or molested youngsters. But nonetheless, the spell he faced in Barliny beforehand would be a living hell. For that Monday, Wallace had just become the most hated individual in Scotland. The twisted perpetrator of a crime so appalling that it churned the stomach just thinking about it. Ten-year-old Christopher Doyle, the boy he had slaughtered three and a half months before, was a lovely trusting kid who had died horrifically simply because his killer blamed him for being responsible for a tiny crack in his bicycle mirror. Oh yes. It's fair to say that Wallace's life until that day had been as miserable as the crime for which he'd just been jailed, but if he hoped for any kind of sympathy, he was on a loser, for Wallace had always been a blemish on society, someone who offered and gave nothing to it. Reportedly, as a teenager, he was shunned by others, for Wallace was a bully who took out his unpredictable bursts of violence on the younger children he would associate with. An adolescent with no interest in girls. When he was 20 years old in 1936, he had picked an argument with a boy aged nine in Ayrshire. The child tried to get away, but Wallace was having none of it, punching and kicking him in a frenzy, and then even trying to drown him. Now, thankfully, the child survived and was able to tell police about his ordeal, so Wallace was arrested and charged with attempted murder. It had long been suspected that there was something mentally wrong with him, and a police officer who investigated his background described him in a Wonderful Example of Non PC as not being the full shilling. A line my mum still uses to this day, actually. By the time he appeared in court to answer these charges, and where he was convicted and ordered to be detained at His Majesty's pleasure, he'd been examined by doctors who concluded he was insane and as a result was moved to the criminal lunatic unit at Perth Prison to serve his effective life sentence. It was also that year, in 1936, when plans were being discussed to open a state hospital for the dangerously insane at Carstairs. And by the time the hospital was up and running and began taking patients in 1957, Wallace, who was still locked up and regarded as a potential menace, was among the first there. He spent two years at the state hospital before he was transferred on license to Dyke Bar Hospital in Renfrewshire, where security was much more relaxed, a move that at the time made some wonder whether it was really possible for such a disturbed character to make what amounted to an astonishing improvement. As tales for another time will show, it wouldn't be the last time the judgment of the Carstairs management would come into question. Those who knew Wallace raised their eyebrows even further when 12 years after he arrived at Dykbar in 1971, he was given an absolute discharge from there, freedom to rejoin the society he had abused and been removed from in 1936, having been incarcerated as a patient for 35 years. Because his original sentence had been the equivalent of detention for life, permission for his liberty had to come from the then secretary of state for scotland who basically rubber stamped the recommendation of hospital doctors and psychiatrists but were they right time would tell the problem for wallace when he was absolutely discharged was that at 55 years old he had nowhere to go he was homeless friendless jobless and pretty much hopeless there is very little to research about his early life, but it seems that family was non-existent for him. Nobody wanted him or wanted to even remember him. And so at Dyke Bar, managers took pity upon him. They gave him an attic room above one of the hospital blocks, and even a paid job there as a domestic, cleaning, scrubbing and performing simple maintenance tasks. And so his remained a familiar face around the hospital. He spent his three hours and days just wandering aimlessly around the grounds or riding the bicycle that he had bought out of his wages. His pride and joy, his first real possession, which he spent hours polishing and had even forked out a few pence to buy a mirror for, especially always making sure the mirror was crystal clear. Largely a loner, now and again Wallace tried making friends. But because of his mental health problems, and because he was institutionalised, he found it difficult to gel with other adults. So it was then that his old penchant for spending time with youngsters re-emerged. Wallace eventually found friendship with 10-year-old Christopher Doyle, a bright and friendly child, and one who was never without a smile. The boy's parents, who lived in a cottage in the hospital grounds, both worked at Dyke Bar Hospital, his father joseph was a male nurse there while his mother monica was a trainee nurse on top of caring for their three children like other parents they'd warned their children about the perils of talking to strangers and they'd made it clear to wallace in a friendly warning that they wanted him to stay away from christopher though this was not heeded and the odd friendship continued with wallace allowing the child to ride his bicycle then one day in January 1976, the 4th, Wallace noticed that his beloved bicycle had a cracked mirror. It was a tiny crack, almost so tiny you couldn't see it, but it was enough to reawaken the long dormant temper in Thomas Wallace. Of course, he couldn't possibly have done that to his most prized possession, his mind wouldn't even entertain that possibility, so it must have been his friend Christopher and in the still clearly sick mind of thomas wallace he planned what he felt was deserved punishment for this for christopher death at a deserted house near to the hospital grounds wallace went and hid a hammer and a length of tape then later that day lured his young victim there with promises that he could ride the bicycle when unsuspecting christopher arrived Wallace launched immediately into a horrendous attack upon the boy, smashing him on the head with a hammer with a force so powerful that the tool broke, until he fell unconscious. At which point, Wallace then wrapped the tape around the youngster's neck, pulling it tight and strangling him. When he was sure the boy was dead, and he was more than likely killed almost instantly from the hammer blows, Wallace then threw his body into the Todd Burn a stream that ran through the grounds of Dykebar Hospital and then wheeled his bicycle away. It wasn't until the early hours of the next morning that Christopher's mutilated body was discovered and nearby police found the broken hammerhead and shaft and the two lengths of bloodstained tape that had been used to kill him. Wallace was arrested the same day and admitted the murder saying, I don't know what came over me but I hit him twice with a hammer over the head, and the head came off the hammer. He started shouting for help, and I put a tape around his neck and strangled him. I regret it, but it's too late now. At his trial the following April at Glasgow High Court, Wallace pleaded guilty to murder. A psychiatrist who had examined him said, He has no control over his aggression. He's likely to overreact whether or not he is provoked he should never be allowed out of an institution again for the rest of his life Wallace's defense team led by Donald McCauley Casey told the court that Wallace's only ambition was to get back into Carstairs as reportedly he'd spent 54 of his 59 years on earth in institutions of one kind or another as I said there's little to research about Wallace's early life so the validity of this claim cannot be ascertained, as neither can what is deemed an institution in this sense. It was a quote reported in the newspapers of the time now. His counsel also warned the court that he would be in danger in an ordinary prison instead of a hospital, a defence psychiatrist saying, I believe he will fulfil a threat to kill himself if he is sent to prison. Before he was sentenced, Wallace twice asked to be allowed to speak, but was denied permission by the judge, Lord Thompson, who said after the prosecution had claimed that Wallace was sane, he had, after all, been absolutely discharged five years before, that he was imposing the mandatory sentence for murder, life imprisonment, at which Wallace suddenly burst out, I, in Barlini, and began struggling, shouting, and pleading not to be sent there. He even tried clambering out of the dock into the well of the courtroom, but was hauled back by three policemen, two of whom had drawn their truncheons. Finally restrained, as he was hustled down the steps leading from the dock to the cells below the courtroom, his screams of YOU SWINES for sending him to Barlinny could still be heard. The fact that their son's killer had been caught and would never again experience freedom was no consolation to Joseph and Monica Doyle. Monica said, following Wallace's sentencing, You can tell a child not to speak to someone, that that person is bad or dangerous, but children forget warnings very quickly. Wallace should never have been allowed freedom. The tendencies were there, and people better trained and more knowledgeable than us should have seen them the sentiments echoed those of parents everywhere now while the controversy over his release continued and questions were raised as to why he'd been reclassified when there was still a dangerous killer inside him wallace was as expected moved to peterhead after a spell in barlinny its grim walls had once held the toughest convicts in scotland now it housed sex offenders rapists pedophiles and a handful of men felt to be in need of protection. He had made no secret of wanting to be returned to Carstairs but it was pointed out to him that doctors had said he was sane and after just six miserable months at Peterhead, one day in early nineteen seventy seven, strung himself up in his cell and took his own life, a fate that many believed he deserved, for it meant that he would harm no more children. so we've heard tales of jealousy the utmost horrors stemming from petty arguments or the most minor of infractions but for the final account this time around which took place more than a quarter of a century after wallace's horrific crime this can only be described as pure illness in the truest sense for there was no possible other explanation than that no motive whatsoever on March the 9th, 2001, then 35-year-old John Gourley checked himself out of Dykebat Hospital, the scene of Wallace's horrific crime a quarter of a century before, and returned to the home he periodically shared with his then-fiancée, 22-year-old Brenda Durban, and her 4-year-old son Luke, a house in Cunningham Road in the North Ayrshire town of Saltcoats. Now, why exactly he had isn't documented, but it is understood that for whatever reason, Gowley had checked himself into Dykbar Hospital for a psychiatric assessment as a voluntary patient the previous day, but had discharged himself before this was completed, after staff had discussed with him possibly giving him medication. His behaviour was a bit odd-sounding in the days and weeks leading up to this, but I shall come on to that in a bit. Now that Friday evening and into the Saturday Brenda had had raging toothache. Such a horrible pain, that isn't it? And one that really does drive you right up the wall, isn't it? And after a largely sleepless night, during which four-year-old Luke had woken and climbed into bed with her and Golly at about 4.40am, to save disturbing her other two bedfellows, Brenda had risen and gone to stay in the spare room to try and get a fraction of sleep. She'd probably only been asleep for an hour or two, tops, when at about 8am, she was awakened by Gourley, who told her the startling news that he couldn't find four-year-old Luke in the house, but that the front door to the house was open. Now the panic a person must feel at that, unimaginable, it really is. As a frantic Brenda began going house to house, becoming more and more hysterical, Gourley told her that he was going to get his son from a previous relationship, John Gourley Jr. to help him search for Luke and set off to head around there as Brenda reported his son as missing to police. Arriving at the home of his former girlfriend, Jacqueline Patton, a short time later, John Jr. noticed that aside from obviously being distraught and agitated, understandable with a missing four-year-old, his father's clothing was also soaking wet and dirty, to which he explained that he had fallen over. He even stopped and asked Jacqueline to wash his jacket and trainers for him there and then, which she duly did. Noticing when the fast wash cycle had finished on the machine, that girlie had also slipped in his jeans and socks too. Priorities with a missing kid, right? Looking clean. A massive police hunt for the missing boy was immediately launched upon receiving the report, covering the Saltcoats area and spreading outwards, and by just over 14 hours after he was reported missing, by that Saturday evening, little Luke Durban had been found, though in the circumstances nobody looking for him wanted. He was found by police officers some 15 miles away from his home, dumped and mutilated almost beyond belief in a spot that his killer had led officers to. His killer being his potential stepfather, John Goley. Goley had admitted by then to officers that he had taken Luke, and took them the 15 miles to a wood at Castle Semple Countryside Park in Loch Winnoch, in Renfrewshire, where, on the floor of a derelict building there, the body of four-year-old Luke Durban was found clad only in underwear and partially covered with an old blanket a later post-mortem was to list the extent of the mutilation he had received six severe wounds to his head neck back shoulders and chest which were thought to have been caused by a heavy half moon edged garden fencing tool and which had severed his spine and had almost decapitated the child Thankfully, if there can be anything to thank from something so awful, death had been instantaneous for Luke. Horror beyond belief indeed, that isn't it? Gowley told police in his later interview that early that morning, just before 6am, as he and the boy lay in bed, voices in his head had driven him to take Luke, so he then wrapped the boy in a blanket and took him from the house in Cunningham Road. Put him in the back seat of his car, which it transpired was seen by a newspaper delivery boy, and drove him the 15 miles to Castle Semple Countryside Park. Here, he took the boy, who was dressed only in his underwear, into a derelict building and struck him with the garden tool, as I said, a half moon lawn edging tool he had fetched with him, severing his spine and killing the boy instantly. He had then struck him a further five times with all of the strength that he could muster. Garley claimed that he had killed Luke to protect him and his mother from people who he imagined were after the child. Out to get them was the phrase he used. Referring to these voices, he told officers, I took him to a place that they kind of showed me to. If I hadn't done it, they would have taken him. They put out a pole, a brush pole with a big chopper on the end of it. I was to hit him with it. He didn't know I'd done it. Stuff of nightmares, indeed, eh? On Monday, the 12th of March 2001, Gourlay, his address given as Orkie Crescent, Foxbar in Paisley, appeared at Kilmarnock Sheriff Court, appearing in a private hearing before Sheriff Thomas Crone charged with abducting luke and taking him to the nature reserve at loch Winnoch, where he then murdered him garley made no plea or declaration at this short hearing and was immediately remanded in custody to appear again at a later date the following monday the funeral of little luke durban took place at saint brendan's church in saltcoats where about 500 mourners family friends and locals and a number of senior Strathclyde police officers, made up the congregation attending the service to pay their respects, and to remember the boy described by all as a little angel. Among the dozens of floral tributes covering the funeral carriage was a Bob the Builder toy, one of Luke's favourites, and a bunch of lilies from the boy's grandparents, the card accompanying it reading, Our very special grandson. You are always in our hearts, and we will never stop hearing, I heard that. I'm going to miss you, Luke. With your help, we will meet again. Papa Graham A card from Luke's heartbroken mother, Brenda, placed on a floral tribute in the shape of a train, read, To my wee petal, this card isn't big enough to say all the things I want, so I've written you a wee letter instead. All it will say, honey, is if you need me, Even just for a squeeze and a hug, you blow your magic sparkles and I'll be there. Love you always, Mum. So crowded was the service that a crowd of mourners stood outside listening to the service as it was relayed over the church's loudspeaker system, hearing Father Stephen Sharkey telling mourners. Luke could be described as your typical four-year-old, loving, caring, with no worries, sometimes a wee bit cheeky, but most of all, a little angel, always polite, very observant, and at home here in this church, God's house. The hour-long Catholic Mass ended with a playing of the West life song on angels' wings, at which Luke's mother wept uncontrollably to be consoled by her shattered family, and following the move in service, the mourners filed out and lined the road leading from the church entrance as the three-car cortege containing Luke's family and his coffin left for a private family burial at Hawkill Cemetery in Stevenston. Ahead of Gourley's trial details emerged of how his mind had become more disturbed in the weeks leading up to the horrific killing of Luke as it was documented that a week or so before he had admitted himself to Dykebar, he was trying to sell most of his furniture and had spent hours on the computer making a series of bizarre business or calling cards which he handed out in pubs around the Renfrewshire area The cards, which featured drawings of a lion, dragon, kangaroo, shark and golden eagle were each cut meticulously to size and then wrapped carefully in strips of sellotape to give the effect they were laminated and red John Gourlay, lion tamer kangaroo killer, tortoise trainer, shark shaker, rabbit plucker, eagle catcher and dragon slayer he finished it off with the word extraordinaire which for all his meticulousness was spelt wrongly but bizarre that or what eh one man who was given a card said i was going to buy a wardrobe off him but i didn't go ahead he seemed okay but i didn't think the card was weird I'd no idea it was the same guy who had killed the boy until a friend told me. It made me a bit uneasy to know I'd been speaking to him. Criminal psychologist Ian Stephen said later, The card is grandois and shows that this person believes himself to be almost capable of handling anything. It's meant to be tongue-in-cheek, but there's an underlying menace with the use of words such as killer and slayer this is a man suffering from delusions you think on the 7th of august 2001 john goley was ordered to be detained without limit of time at the state hospital after presiding lord Prosser directed the jury at the high court in glasgow to acquit him of the murder of luke Durban because he was insane at the time of it as full details of the crime and of his son's horrific injuries were relayed to the court, Brenda Durbin broke down in floods of tears. Dr. John Baird, a consultant forensic psychologist with Greater Glasgow Health Board, who had examined Gurley following his arrest and charges, told the court that Gurley said he had been hearing voices for a considerable time, and had described to the doctor how he had seen garden forks in a nearby garden lying with the points facing upwards only shortly before the killing, which he believed held a special significance. The doctor told the court, This is a classic example of a psychotic phenomena. Some individuals are unable to stop such hallucinations. Dr. Baird explained that people with a psychotic mental illness often fail to show signs of their symptoms, and often people living with them became too accustomed to their habits to notice, a point Martin Jones for the Crown agreed with, telling the jury that nothing had been detected by Luke's mother or Gourley's relatives, or even when Gourley went to a psychiatric hospital in the Paisley area. Dr Baird could not explain why Gourley's illness had suddenly developed so drastically when it did, and with such tragic results but said he had been undoubtedly suffering from it for a considerable period. Asked if doctors could predict the onset of the illness, Dr. Baird said, Not with any accuracy. Tragedies such as the one in this case are thankfully not common, but psychotic illness, unfortunately, is relatively common in the community. One in a hundred in the population can suffer from it at one time in their lives. Dr. Baird affirmed there was no doubt Gourley's mental illness was genuine and he concluded he was insane at the time of Luke's killing. Although he was at that time sane and fit to plead, Gourley was still suffering from a mental illness which warranted his detention without limit of time in the state hospital for the Public safety. Another expert, Dr. Colin Gray, a consultant forensic psychiatrist at the state hospital, where Gourley had been held since his arrest, told the court, When I examined Mr. Gourley, his thinking was disordered. I felt his condition likely to be schizophrenia, and I am of the belief that he did not understand his actions at the time. He said Gawley had since undergone treatment, and was making some progress. Now, after hearing evidence from the two psychiatrists, the jury accepted Lord Prosser's directions that Gawley was suffering from an alienation of reason at the time he killed Luke, and was therefore not guilty of murder. Lord Prosser told the jury, Even in a case when a person commits a crime such as murder, if they are insane at the time, the law does not hold them responsible. The prime issue in this difficult and unusual case is whether there is an issue of insanity and you have heard two expert witnesses say this was so. As her former partner was led away back to Carstairs, Gourley glanced at Luke's mother Brenda, who was sitting in court surrounded by her family, and to which she broke down in tears at, staring at the floor. He is believed to remain in the state hospital to this day. Following the hearing, Renfrewshire and Inverclyde Primary Care NHS Trust, known as Renver, which runs Dyke Bar Hospital, refused to discuss the case, citing patient confidentiality. A spokesperson said, Renver recognises how difficult, challenging and traumatic mental illness can be, and over the years has built a team of experts who are among the most highly qualified medical people in the UK. For reasons of patient confidentiality, It would be inappropriate to comment on any individual's treatment. However, like everyone else, we at Renver are deeply saddened by the incident which happened, and our thoughts are with the family. And you'd have to think, someone who admits themselves as an inpatient to a psychiatric facility obviously doesn't do that lightly. So should it have been as easy for Gourley to discharge himself mere hours before committing such a heinous crime one committed clearly in the grip of mental illness should it be a waiver that it is a minimum of two or three days that you remain an inpatient if you admit yourself because if so and never mind all this kid gloves bollocks resisting this about the government possibly being sued and all that shit perhaps if it was it might just prevent tragedies such as Luke Durban from happening. Just a thought. Some drastically sad tales here then, that show the terrible events that mental illness can bring. Now whereas we normally have a bit of a pick apart of cases to wrap up, you can't hear really with these tales. For the actions described within here were a result of mental illness. It's an illness that can affect anyone during their life. That no one is exempt from, and although with the majority it can be managed through medication or counselling, there is that select few that commit such acts because of it that mean they're required to be kept in a secure hospital for an indefinite period, as much for their own benefit as for the safety of the public. None of the perpetrators mentioned within this episode were or are in hospitals without warranty either. And sometimes a person does go beyond that reach and are effectively lost. It's something that can come on that is still largely unable to understand, however learned the scholar, because it can differ with everybody. We've heard time and again of the frightening and horrific events a person with mental illness can commit. Think of the original Carstairs trilogy from a few years back on the show, or the episodes The Time Bomb, Daughter of the Devil, Boy Called Daniel, Shooter on a Sunday morning, the list goes on. I can never imagine a time where the state hospital will never be necessary or full either, and we will be back there on the show at a future date. I would love as always hearing your thoughts and feedback on the episode four more from the Carstairs Floors, which you can do so in the thread that's now up in the episode show notes, or by getting in touch through any of the show's social media links, I really don't mind at all. With that, I have blathered on well enough here, and it's on to the next tale, probably which will end up as being the penultimate one of this series, before the finale, and then a couple of weeks recharging and researching, and then I'll be back. And coincidentally, I have a right tale earmarked for that one too. All that remains for me to say is that I've been, I still am, and hopefully still will be Paul, the true crime enthusiast. Wishing you all good and safe times, and I shall speak to you very soon. Take care all and stay safe. Thanks very much for joining me and goodbye for now.